where I saw the, the turn in culture was this hospital attack. Because you saw the national media reporting, like 15 minutes after it happened, right. reporting as a matter of fact from Hamas telling them that 500 people were killed. It's like, really? This just happened 15 minutes ago. Like, you, you just established 500 people? Yeah, 500 people dead. And then every headline read that, right? When, when I saw the original footage showing the parking lot and then they're saying at the same time as a talking point, 500 people were killed. And you're like, what? what? 500 people were killed in a hospital? You're showing in the parking lot. That was a parking lot. And then with all the evidence that came out, not one organization in news showed and definitively said, we screwed up. The Black Rifle Podcast starts now. So I saw that elk that Andy, so Andy has your elk in the Kalispell coffee shop. I saw the heads, two heads mounted on the wall, right? Wow. Which I felt cool. was ironic. I yeah. think that's the right term, which is you guys put your heads together in the Kalispell coffee shop. We do. Yeah. We do. I've seen some videos of guys putting their heads together, but I don't know if that's the same. They try to put a little slant on the eye <laughs> of mine. Ed from the taxidermy shop. Big mm-hmm. shout out to Ed's. He's man, that dude. Oh, he grinds. Yeah, and he could barely walk. Really? Oh, barely. I've never like, met him. He's old and overweight, but just one of the best taxidermists in the country. Holy shit! I didn't know that. Yeah, I think he's done. And at Desert Red at their lodge, he did all of those dating back decades. Uh-huh. And he's also did the two bulls that we got from Desert Red with you last year that are in Kalispell, the RCC. Huh. Yeah, I didn't hunt up there last year. I gave uh, gave the tag. That's one of the perks that you have for working here is it comes in as a bonus Yeah, throughout the year. So That's the way I it should it. be. That's really cool. Yeah, man. Like, I saw Casey. Yeah, yeah. She Casey. Bagged. Is that her first hunt? That's her first elk. Yeah, that's her first elk. Because Neil, uh, he shot an elk up there three years ago. That's right, yep. In preparation for his coffee shop in Spanish Fork. Yep. And then you and Andy, which technically I thought your head was going to be down in your new new office. But, you know, neither yeah. here nor there. I think yeah. it's great that you guys put them together. You know what I mean? Did you see the, the it was the year that uh, Neil got that big elk mm-hmm. i didn't have a tag so i took his photo and i photoshopped <laughs> yeah. my face on it. <laughs> yeah and everybody was like congrats and i was yeah. like big shout out to neil yeah facilitating and it the was kill. the worst photoshop and everybody it, was literally going, the worst that, everybody was going congrats I, i'm surprised you were called out of stolen valor oh, nearly for then, nearly you know? nearly nearly called out nearly so you went on three hunts this, this I did. Yeah. season yeah i found one later uh then i I Joe and I went on that hunt in California, and then the one that I didn't find is the uh, one in Deseret. So, and he he jumped a string. So I was uh, the setup was, and I'll put it I'll put it in this video so you guys can watch. The setup was uh, it's like thirty one yards away, got right in next to him on water archery. Yeah, yeah. Shot him, uh, good shot. I wouldn't have made it any differently. Yeah, but he dropped probably 18 inches in just the time when he heard the arrow released yeah. to the time of when it made an impact. So, so it was like was, a deflate. It was, it yeah. went down. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. So he went down and we, we actually, we had a, we had another guy with us. He got a video of the whole thing. You can kind of see it because he's behind a tree, but I'll, I'll put that in there. It's, you know, 
I can't shoot it any differently. It is what it is. Yeah. It <laughs> happens, man. If you hunt enough, it happens. It happens. So, you know, I've been very fortunate. And, I mean, I shoot a lot of arrows throughout the year. Uh, I get a lot of opportunities in September, October to, to sh- shoot elk. But this year, I, I was uh, I, I was just – it's a bad year, man. Like, you know, I think it's just one of those things that it forces you to train harder. It forces you to think about it differently. Mm-hmm. It forces you to make – and to be fair, I, I don't know how I can make better shots other than shoot more and be more patient. So, yeah. you know, I I have a really difficult time with just not capitalizing on a current opportunity because, you know, the bird in the hand, that's kind of my mentality, right? If it's a big bowl and, you know, you have a shot, especially one that's, that's a good shot, you know, take your time. Uh, you definitely shouldn't make shots when you feel you no know, ramped up when you don't feel like you you can take a shot that's going to count um i watched joe hunt um rogan yeah and because <clears throat> i killed my bull on day one and then i kind of spotted for him the rest of the hunt so it was like four days and i watched him move on stock after stock after stock and he's a very disciplined hunter he won't he, he won't take shots unless no it's risk. Perfect. No, yeah. no, no. He's got to make a perfect shot. Um, and, you know, I I found through, like, watching a lot of stocks, and I actually watched uh, him kill the last bull from just across the draw. So we are watching him on this bedded-down bull that, you know, he'd been working all week. He'd probably blown 30 stocks. Wow. 30. And just to get that one Just to get the one. To be fair, it's, you know, it's, it's – hard obviously elk hunting isn't easy yeah it is hard. everything has to go right especially because you're trying to close a gap you're trying to get yeah. inside at least 70 yards on most of these is that your standard 70 inside 70 yeah. yeah i i made a shot i think my my first year because i didn't know better you know it was at 94 i killed the elk it died within two minutes basically in the same spot that i shot it there's a bit of controversy that ultimately educated me around don't take really long shots because there's a, there's a lot that can happen. Between, time of flight. Yeah. Time of flight. There's, you know, movement of the animal. Yeah. yeah. But I was, I was very lucky. And I will say that like on the show, I was very lucky. I shouldn't have taken a 94 yard shot. I didn't know better. It was my first year archery hunting. I'm not like down the rabbit hole on, you know, archery in the context of I'm reading all the Reddit streams and figuring out like this or that it's, you know, I went through that entire tack of making shots at like 100, 120, you know, really long shots at a lot of these animals. Or you're comfortable with it. Super comfortable. Yeah. I shoot out here at 100 mm-hmm. three times a week. Yeah. So I shoot at 100. I don't even shoot inside the 70 typically. And when I'm taping my bow, like when I'm taping, what that means is when I'm making sure that my my sight is accurate to the yardage tape, which indicates where you are because you can adjust your yardage on it, that's when I shoot inside the 70. Outside of that, once it's taped and it's good, I don't even shoot inside the 70. Yeah. So I step out of my truck. The way it kind of folds out every day, where I park uh, five days a week when I'm in town, I'm at 90 yards. This is in the back of the parking lot. Yeah, 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 back of parking lot. So Open space. I've got two... Um, Foam blocks that are set up against a concrete wall 90 yards away from where I park. My bow's in the back of the truck. And so, you know, depending on the day, it might be five, six days a week that 
I pull in and I make cold shots at 90 with my bow at essentially what I feel is a pie plate target. So I feel really comfortable at 90. Mm. I just know when we're looking at, you know, damage or cavitation, specifically with the velocity of the arrow, it's going to slow down quite a bit. So next year I'm going to go up. So How many pounds? 70. 70? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I, I shoot like 73 now. Next year I'm going to go up to 80. I'm going to go up in grain too. So I'm going to go up probably – 100 grains in my arrow i'm going to take it up to about 500 grains i'm going to go up to 80 pounds uh which i probably will shake out at 280 275 ish i would imagine as far as like feet per second yeah um which is totally fine because i'm not making long shots on animals so i'm going to have more weight hitting the target and it's just a simple simple calculation it's like velocity weight mm-hmm. times ultimately or, or or with the formula i guess it would, it, would, it would like where is it coming in how big is the hole there's a lot of different other variables that you can plug in but it's a fairly easy math problem what are um, you you're still using psc right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'm using psc um you know, i went up and shot with cam last week he shoots hoyt he does what'd yeah. you how'd you how, what'd you think about that hoyt i thought i like it yeah i liked yeah. it yeah. it was a lot heavier than the psc mm-hmm. yeah but it it felt really stable Mm -hmm. and his, I think Cam's philosophy is, Hey, I want that extra weight. At least. And, and I got it. He's shooting a 90, he's shooting a 90 pound bow. Yeah. That's what I'm shooting. I I believe he said, and uh, you guys will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he, he, he said he's shooting on like 525. Yeah. So it's a 90 pound bow at 525. But I mean, that guy shot his bull in, in Utah last year at a yard. So I think he <laughs> shot this one this year at like three hours. Like yeah, it was right? super close. So he's he's a he's, he's a very disciplined hunter. Yeah, he's, he's a really disciplined guy. He's extremely humble and generous with his time. Yeah, like I stopped into the podcast, but uh, you didn't do lift, run, shoot. No, you did limp, um, talk, shoot, pick up the bag. Yeah, shoot, yeah. not breaking records. I, I um. Because, you know, I, I'm still holding the record, I think. Well, until I got there. And then <laughs> <laughs> I just asked, what was Mike's yardage? That's all I cared about. And they they, were, they pulled it up. They were like, I think it was 126 or something like that, right? One, it was 136. No, it wasn't. No, it was. I swear. Uh, you can reference the video. Well, whatever it was, I'm further. And that's the only <laughs> thing that mattered. Because I was like... I don't care just as long as I beat my There was no you can't even use a site. You're lo- you're using like the plastic. Like there's no reference on mm-hmm. the dial. Like I was like shooting I mean it was it Yeah, was, you, yeah, I was yeah. aiming at the the trees above the target yeah. and it was yeah. it was interesting cuz it was raining. It's yeah. a lower elevation, so I wasn't getting the flight characteristics that I get in Utah. Yeah. You know, it's it's way more humid and in you know, especially Eugene. It is a lot of humidity. Always raining. It's already yeah. always. It, it was actually just drizzling. It wasn't raining. Mm-hmm. So I, I was, I was surprised at how much drop that I got from oh, the arrow. Yeah, um, it was significant. It was like Whereas, up and then dropped oh, out, bottomed out, cratered out. I couldn't hit the target yeah. at ninety. Whereas, like, I'm like, I'm still dialing at ninety up here. Yeah. It's, so I, I was surprised at how big of a difference there was. More yeah. resistance, more air yeah, resistance. Right? I guess. Yeah. 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 There's a little bit of elevation there, but not like it is here. No, I think it's, he said it's like two thousand feet or something yeah. like that. So you know, a couple thousand feet. Yeah. The density altitude mm-hmm. is a lot different. Yeah. yeah. It was fun though. I, the guy was like, 
really uh he, he was super interesting to hang out with like Kim's a great a stud, show man. yeah he's I a like stud Kim. he's a beast like the guy he's just hard he's and he hard does it dude. every week yeah and every day mm -hmm. like he does the show every week where lift run shoot yeah. and then he does it side by side yeah whatever you want to do he's down for mm -hmm. you like you out you know working around injury i think i was the first guy that used to go rucked sandbag because he had it. He's like, yeah, hey, you want to do that versus the boulder? And I'm like, right. absolutely. I don't want right. to carry the boulder. What was your injury? What were you working around? Uh, my neck. That um, com before. now completely blew out. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How's, how is that? Like, like, walk us through your neck surgery, kind of how long have you been dealing with this injury? Yeah. What's what's rehab going to look like? Because, I, I mean, well, I, well, I have I, similar issues. Yeah, you, you yeah. me and you have the similar experience, and mm -hmm. I, I kind of – when I reference when it initially started, it actually started in Ranger School when really? I was like when I was nineteen. The first time I felt pain in my neck was in Ranger School. From what? Do you from remember? from? So I went to Ranger School as a leg, like a, a nasty, a, dirty, a leg. dirty human yeah, being. Right. A leg. If, if for yeah. those of you that don't understand what a leg is, I don't even know what that means. Non airborne qualified. Yeah. Meaning you can walk yeah. to work. That's essentially what. Hundred percent. Yeah. And so. When I went to Ranger School, I went to Airborne School a day after Ranger School, which was brutal. Like going to a school where you weren't suffering, you were eating a lot, yeah. but then you had to do all the Army, APFT, right. all the stuff. Yeah, yeah. After being broke in Ranger School was difficult. So I initially heard it in Ranger School when, if you're a leg in Ranger School, depending on the class, and they probably don't do it now because it's probably illegal, they put you on a deuce and a half. And when everybody's doing the airborne op in, they drove us yeah. into whatever phase it was around an a deuce and a half, and right. you had a PLF off the off the, the deuce and a half. Yeah, like they literally lined sense. you up like it was an airborne op yeah. and jumped you off a deuce and a half, and you landed on the tank road. Right. You PLF'd, you got your stuff, and then you were out. I did that, and I remember my helmet on my head, which was a big Kevlar, which weighs about four pounds. Right. Uh, at the time, helmets weigh a lot more now. It, my neck snapped forward, and when I landed in PL left, I remember going, ooh, God, that hurt. Huh. And so what I've realized subsequently after that, because I've had this neck issue, which I thought was my shoulder, I thought was a muscle, I was like, ah, oh, something up in my neck. It's just like I'm blowing out my neck. And you said the same thing, like, oh, I got this kink in my neck. It is the impingement of the nerve that runs through your vertebrae. And the more scar tissue you have, which the doctor said in working C5, he's like, I haven't seen that much scar tissue in anybody. And I had a complete impingement. So the nerves run out of the vertebrae. And I'm, again, I'm no expert. So if you're listening to me for expertise, I'm not. You are Asian. I am Asian. So that gives you a little bit of credibility when it comes Transition to Transition this about... whole talking point to math. <laughs> and I got you. But like the, the nerves run out. And when you start getting a bulging disc, which is known as a herniated disc, it starts in pending the nerve's ability to navigate to where it's supposed to be. Mine was the median nerve that runs into your hand. Right. So I did jujitsu with Greg Lappin, with my professor at my headquarters, right. my, my jujitsu studio. And then that week I was moving my entire house by myself. Yeah, because that makes sense. It was stupid. Like hire, outsource yeah. the moving guys. Right. And I didn't want to bother anybody. So I was like, I might as well do it. So I was doing all this stuff, lifting all this stuff, and then doing jujitsu. And I literally had a blowout. And I'm used to a blowout where I'm like, oh, God, blowed out. And yeah. now I can't move my neck. Yeah, yeah. Ironically, the last time I had a blowout, 
was nothing sexy like jujitsu. I was taking a shower and I got out as you would naked and I grabbed the towel and I went to throw it over my back and it caught the back of my head. Cause you know, you use right your back. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So I grabbed it with two hands, threw it over and it caught the top of my head yeah. and pulled down my head and I blew out my neck that way, oh. butt naked, just like, com- like neck brace completely in like could not do anything this time when i impinged the nerve the middle finger first finger thumb parts of my arm and my left toes were completely numb what completely numb i can't feel my trigger finger still to this day like i can't i have no feeling in my trigger finger so is this going to become a consistent excuse if you can't beat my splits remember when i beat you on that last video that was the last time i was great right right. but now that i have no feeling and i surprise myself every time i break the trigger I'm going to be three times as good as you. Oh, okay. I'm two three times X. as good as you now, but three, three times. Three X, okay. <laughs> I'll write that. So I, I, <laughs> I took your advice. I talked to Rogan yesterday or the day before yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And I did, he put me in contact with the guys. I should plug them because it's it's a good institution. Is it in Austin? No, it's the guys in, uh, in, uh, in Mexico. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. The guy's in uh, Tijuana. What's right? it called? Yeah, Tijuana. Yeah, I know what you're talking and about. And it's called, um, I, I want to, here, the reason I, I want to say this is because it's from CPI, stem cells. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the reason I want to say this is because a lot of people that I know who has our background mm-hmm. from wear and tear have that issue. Mm-hmm. But what I realized talking to buddies who don't have our background, a lot of people deal with this issue. And so if you have the kink in your neck, if you have like the, oh God, a chiropractor, a whatever the therapy is, is likely going to extend the lifeline until you have an, a, a complete impingement, but eventually and likely you will have an impingement. Like you, you will yeah, be in that boat. Yeah. Um, a lot of guys that I, that I interoperate with uh, uh, are getting it checked out now, hmm. but it's like, if you don't get it checked out right now, you're likely to have a complete impingement uh, Sheriff Mark Lamb from Pinal County, he had the same impingement I had, same surgery, but he waited a year. Now he's got complete nerve damage in the median nerve where he ignored all the issues he was having before he had surgery. So when they did my MRI in the ER, they went, you have to go to surgery right now. I'm like, why? It's like bright spine, bright spine, dark spine, no life, it's dead which is why your hand and arm are numb. And that's scary. Because when you get to that point, that's like paralysis, essentially. It's right. pinching that nerve. Yeah. And so I, excruciating pain, they, they, go, they go through your neck. The procedure is not bad. They cut your throat muscle. Mm-hmm. They, move, they move some stuff out of the way. They cut the muscle in front of your spine, at least from what I was told. And then they put in disc. I have four artificial disc put into my neck. Wow. Right now. But and but after it's all said and done, the um th- it looks like it's gonna be good. It looks Seriously? like it's gonna be it looks like the diagnosis from that surgery, which was not fusing, but artificial disc, is likely to give me like a new lease on jujitsu and all the things that we normally do. Like we I, we're doing a jump trip in Moab. Yeah, yeah. Are you um, gonna jump? No, nah, I can't jump. Yeah, I was gonna um, say. But I'll be able to eventually right. for all these things that we like to do and yeah. you know it happens man i mean it happens you, you're dealing with it a lot of people that wore helmets it's not nothing sexy it's not like i got blown up an ied which is yeah. why I, it's like dude when you wear a helmet for 20 years of your life 
I used to do hey-ho operations and the SOP, because I used to do the emergency procedures and the wind tunnel uh, call yeah, for yeah. my guys before we did a, a recall in um, Skydiver, Arizona. The EPs and all the procedures, one of the procedures were when we deployed our chute, because we, we don't mm-hmm. use hacky sacks, we right. use uh, rip cords, was turn your head sideways yeah. with night vision, yeah, yeah. pack whatever, lights, lasers, all the things, turn it sideways, and while your neck is sideways, watch your chute deploy. Right. And while you're doing that, you're going from terminal velocity to zero, Right. and your neck sideways, and the way your neck is going sideways, yeah, yeah. and that's not healthy. In fact, uh, Chris Van Zant, yeah, former operator, mm-hmm. a really good dude and, and, and good friend of mine. He's actually moving to Salt Lake City, which is, is great. Is he really? He is, man. Oh, that's cool. Um, he's helping out with Tom Satterley's organization, All Secure Foundation. I think he's like right. the COO. Um, he is the one who was at USASOC G8 who made them change the requirement where you didn't have to do that. Instead, you just look down. Uh-huh. Like you just clear your sp- airspace and then you deploy the chute and then you gra- grab the risers and then you'll save your neck and likely um, lots of pain in the future. And it took me 100 plus jumps as a free fall jam before that changed, which is part of the issue. Right. I mean, it's, it's not the totality of it, but. How do you feel now? Like shit. Yeah. I'm in constant pain. Right. And it's like the chronic level of pain is like a five. Uh-huh. And I have a high <clears throat> threshold for pain. I've never said I was ever a 10. But when this was going down, I was spiking at 10. And you can't use ner- you can't use pain meds. You can't use. Um, so it doesn't work? It doesn't work. Because huh. it's, it's, it's core nerve pain right. at the place where pain comes from your right. nervous system. Like they, they, I saw the surgery, they do a hook, they use like a plastic hook to move your spinal cord and nerve out of the way. Whoa. Just the disruption of touching your spine is a significant issue. And I've learned so much about like muscle versus somebody else, like uh, Greg Lappin, you'll like this analogy because you kind of like are into this kind of yeah, movement. That's cool. This is universally cool. used for a lot of things. Yeah. You like that? Yeah, it looks cool. Should I make it circular? I, no, I like, I like having that. <laughs> Like side from the side view. yeah like i like this? seeing the sides but you're view. you're you're do you like that one better no uh, is it more familiar no oh no there oh yep. okay okay. Yeah, yeah, okay so for if this is the nerve and it's in a sheath the nerve runs through a sheath right and you need to it's called nerve gliding there's like no yoga practitioners like cat who works up front at brcc and does yoga uh yoga jujitsu stuff they yoga practitioners know about this. It's called uh, it's ner- exercising the fluidity of the nerve in a sheath versus what? the muscle. How do you Dude, do that? I have no idea. I just made all Is that shit like up. A, anyway. Oh, okay. You just made no, it I didn't up. make it up. It's yeah. it's legit. It's called nerve gliding. And a practitioner, like for example, like taking your right arm, putting it here, reversing it, yeah. and then at the same time you pitch it up, you move your neck up and like this. That's exercising the nerve glide, huh? which most of us think that the issues that we're having, we're like, oh God, my shoulder. Dude, that's from nerves. That's not from muscles. Interesting. Nerve gliding. It's a game changer. Huh. Yeah. Nerve gliding. Uh, I'm going to write this down. I like how you drew the picture of the sheath. I did. Well, that's not- Like you need it for I was actually (laughs) drawing a different picture. It just looks like what you were describing. Yeah, you circled so it. They put an asterisk. And put a thing in there. Yeah, yeah and like a phone search number. Search that. Search, <laughs> search that later, much later. 
How did well, you like camps? Sucks, man. How did you do though overall? I did fine. I, you know, I, I was coming from uh, my buddy Josh's funeral in Seattle, Tacoma. Oh, what happened? Um, so he died of lung cancer. Just, oh, that's right. He died of lung cancer. I saw it on Joe Kent's page. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I knew him as well. I went <clears> close <throat> to him when I knew who he was. Yeah, he was a first group guy. He was he was at first group, fifth group. Um, he was in regiment. Kind of did some time with OGA. Did he did the whole gambit? I know um, Swick, super yeah. super good guy. Um, I mean, it, truly, and I you know I posted about this. He was like the quiet professional, right? Yeah. He was the guy that he created gravity and weight based on the fact that he only used his his communication when it was absolutely necessary and when yeah. it was conveying a very specific point. So like um it was it was these things are always kind of mixed emotions because you see a bunch of people that you haven't seen in sometimes 20 years um but you're also saying goodbye to somebody that you've known for, you know, 20 years. And you know, our peer group one we have something like a 300% higher rate of, of cancer yeah. than what I would say is a civilian, a non-deployed civilian, especially guys that did lots of rotations with the GWAT. <clears throat> and, you know, seeing how young he was, he was a couple years older than I was. He, you know, died of lung cancer. As, and it happened really, fast, right? It was like the, from diagnosis to yeah. He he had he had dealt with cancer and then cleared it a couple of years ago, and then uh, it eventually got he you know it came back. And he didn't really understand. He didn't know that it had come back until it was it was too late. Um, and I I think what it does is it re- it reaffirms my commitment to trying to understand kind of our our high rates of. of of exposure to toxins and then how can we help specifically you know you can't let a a what i would say is a prominent life event like this um affect you negatively where it doesn't the outcome doesn't come out as positive and i think um turning that event into something that i can turn attention to specifically with hunter seven being very dedicated to how do we get guys in to do cancer screenings? Yeah. How do we get them to, to go in and get their blood work done? I mean, guys, like it costs you less than a hundred bucks to go get your blood work done, like yeah. full panels. Like call your doctor and tell them, pull my panels. And they're going to say, well, what do you want? Like, I mean, and to be fair, I'm not, I'm not discrediting medical professional professionals. I'm just saying over the last couple of years, I've tried really hard to find a doctor that I can talk to on on my level which is like half idiot half like you know pseudo you know health professional you know i I don't even know if that's correct but at the end of the day i understand i I, i've been you know dealing with my body obviously for you know 46 years and the one thing i will say about the military is like you constantly get your physicals like you're getting a physical yeah and then if you're going to a school, if you're doing something else, and you had your med records consolidated, right? Yeah. You could see, you could look at your panels. Yeah, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can pull up my med records, and I literally can look at 20 years of, of panels. Because yeah. every year I was prepping to go to like Scuba or Halo or some other fucking stupid school where it was like, oh, you got to update your physical. You got to go down and get your, you know, go get a finger stuck up your ass and get a whole, you know, 
panel of, of, of information. And now that I'm 46, I have to do that kind of on my own. I have to push my doctor to say, no, dude, like, I'm going to spend the 100 bucks. I'm going to go get a full panel. I'm going to look at my blood work. I'm going to look at my, you know, everything. I'm going to yeah. look at my C-reactive proteins to my my cholesterol. It's not just going to be this, like, a couple key indicators. you got to look at everything, and you have to put it through, you know, where's the median, and then where am I at, and why? You know, why am I high here? Why am I low here? Is that what 107 does? No, is that her specialty? Or? 107 does a, a combination of things. I won't speak for them because she's going to be on the podcast talking about oh, really it. Cool. But what they yeah. do is they, they'll pay for people to get early early screening. So yeah. if you've been deployed, you know, they'll sponsor you to go get the tests, like full panel tests and screenings. Hasn't Matt see. done it? Somebody, yeah, he went guys. through the boot campaign. Matt oh, okay. did that, and that's more brain-related. Yeah. Um, this is really it's, it's paying for additional layers of care paying for research so they're going out to study what's happening in our peer group trying to fund early warning detection detection so it's it's a really important thing that they're doing it's a super important thing that they're doing i i hope to have the founder on the show in the next couple weeks so i don't want to like you know spoil the the information that she's going to put out because i'm sure there's a lot more we've been working with them for several years we've we're we're donating a a six-figure check to those to, to the organization next year. Um, and it's and it, and I think it's really important because as I went around in, um, it, is it kind of kicking the tires with everybody seeing how they're doing? Guys aren't doing good, man. Like they're, they're, not, they're, yeah. they're, a lot of guys are coming down with, with cancer. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of guys that are our age that are coming down with cancer. And I don't know if that's the right word, uh, coming down with it, I, like a cold. I don't think it provides the weight or significance of what it is, but there- His was lung cancer, right? Yeah. Was, it, was he a smoke, no, no, no history? I, you, here and there, like a lot of us, right? It's like you might have a cigarette here and there in your life, right? Yeah. Maybe not like a regular cadence to call yourself or define yourself as a smoker. Yeah. Not enough where you would say like, that that was enough, right? Um. So, you know, trying to, to, to kind of think about this in a way where the, the last week I've, 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 I've been spending a lot of time trying to think about the weight significance of, of, of this specific thing. And then how do I, you know, turn kind of what we do into awareness mm. for, for these types of things? I mean, just that overwhelming statistic you know, if you're a GWAT veteran that deployed over, you know, the course of, we'll say, you know, 2003 to, to 20, 2020, mm. um, you're going to have a much higher rate of, de- of developing a cancer than your standard civilian working at a bank or wherever they are. Um, Is my, I remember 107 focusing on trash pits. Yeah, burn yeah. pits. Burn pits. Well, and the burn pit issue is, it's not going away. I talked about it on Rogan the first time I was there is four years ago i guess five years ago now and um you remember these things yeah i mean dude i i, I would be trying to sleep in you know a, in in a chew you remember those things like it's just basically a shipping container and i had to like douse towels with water bottles and then tuck them in underneath the door mm-hmm. and then because your eyes were burning <clears throat> yeah, yeah. You, and then sleep with something over my face because you couldn't fucking sleep because mm-hmm. it was when the wind shifted and it was being pushed directly into your 
your chew. You one, you weren't getting any sleep. Two, you'd start developing like a cough, like right away because they're burning everything. They're burning like this weird dry cough that everybody had. Everybody had. Everybody it. had it. And they're burning everything. They're burning everything from like, you know, chemicals to medical waste to, to car batteries. You you name it. They're burning Feces, everything. Yeah. yeah. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out who the brain trust of imbeciles were mm. who decided this was a good idea. Mm. And I understand optionality. By the way, I understand this probably more than, than most in, in, in our world because of the size of the company and ultimately the scale. So there's not a reality where I live in where I'm, you know, General Schmuckatelli going, yeah, keep burning our fucking trash in the middle of nowhere. I know the guys can't sleep. And I know that there's like harmful chemicals in there, but keep burning it. I'm trying to decide who and where I can punch these idiots in the face. Yeah. Like that's what I'm trying to decide right now because – the, the the orchestra of idiots that were running these wars, mm. and I talked about this with Logan, and I get more pissed off and more irritated, and I'm really trying hard not to put what I call toxic fuel out into the environment. But between the Pentagon and the guys that had stars running both Afghanistan and Iraq at the time, I... I'm trying to figure out where and how their logic train was. Mm-hmm. And I'm also trying to figure out is where are they now? Like the thing I've, I was talking to Logan about was like, where are these fucking guys, man? Like, are they on a podcast every week talking about chemical exposures no. to the GWAT they're community? No, they're in Raytheon. Meeting. They're in a board meeting. They're, they're back slapping, yeah. back nine, pleated front wearing Docker idiots Mm -hmm. sucking and fucking themselves off, telling themselves how great they were because they could shine the brass on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. They're more concerned with their, their professional accolades developing and executing against a a strategy that will allow them to draw a six figure income sitting on somebody's board post retirement. than they are the guys that ultimately kept them alive. Mm-hmm. And my thing now is fuck them. It's time for accountability all the way through. Yeah. Like where are these guys? Did you read that article with these generals talking about how um we don't have a black mold issue in the barracks. We have a discipline and cleanliness issue with the soldiers. Wow. Don't get me wrong. I can see both sides. Yeah. The arrogance associated yeah. with this cross-legged pseudo-intellectual fucktard mm-hmm. that was like, we don't have a black mold issue in our barracks. More importantly, if you've spent more than a week in the army, you understand we have a mold problem yeah, in the in barracks. Every barracks. Every barracks. Every barracks. Dude, we use World War II barracks. Mm-hmm. For places that we were at. I remember going to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Preparing. Asbestos, lead, dude, all the things. And to have these guys that have quite literally zero understanding as to 
what their soldiers are doing, mm. where and how they're being exposed to different things that they can ultimately, they can improve. To blame your soldiers, is that leadership? No. Is that leadership? Assuming accountability from a leadership perspective is saying, you know what? We've recognized there are some, you know, issues with black mold in the barracks. We're working to adjust those. We're also used, we're also working to adjust any cultural things that might attribute to a lack of cleanliness. Mm -hmm. But it's my job to do that. Mm -hmm. Not, oh, it's their job because 18-year-old private snuffy that grew up under a single parent eating TV dinners, mm -hmm. being raised by a mom that works full-time, work at, you know, at the 7-Eleven. Because he's supposed to understand that he's got to get in and, you know, clean out his, his, his barracks room or whatever it is on a regular basis to prevent mold. No, like the assumption of command and leadership is taking accountability and responsibility. None of them do, by the way. They're the first fucking guys to step in and take accountability or take, uh, not take command. But th what they'll do is they'll take responsibility for something good. They are the take last yeah. people yeah. to take accountability for something bad. Mm -hmm. Systematically, we have a we have a leadership, military leadership problem. Mm -hmm. So, by the way, I'm not saying this every officer in the military. What I'm saying, and so you know, it's the overwhelming majority. The, there is a huge percentage yeah. of these guys. They need to take accountability for their actions. They do you need, know any good ones? Yeah, of course, man. Who name one? Um, <laughs> just one. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a few guys out there that are beating the drum. I mean, Clay Hupmacher, he runs, uh, the special operations board foundation. Yeah. He's a retired two star. He was a former one sixtieth guy. He's, That's right. He's, yeah. he's, 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 he's an incredible human. Scott Miller, and, General yeah. Miller. Like there, there are, I think. But it's rare. I think it is rare. Where are they at, uh, at now? I think where are they? Who, who wrote that article? Was it Jack Carr that wrote the article? Like, where are the generals? Oh, did he write one? Like I, that? I think I think he wrote one. Yeah. But it was like, it's like, where are the generals? You know, where are the leadership? Where's the leaders at? Yeah. And why aren't they outside of promoting themselves and their books? Why are they not advocating for things like this on a big scale? Why is Sergeant Hafer and Sergeant Major Glover like talking on a podcast about these issues? from mm. a very small platform mm. and it's pretty big but it's like a, a, a very narrow platform when they can get on the biggest networks talking about this yeah. issue like, and changing people's you, and culture's you, minds you, you can't swing a dead cat in new york without trying to w without finding a retired colonel one star uh, w whatever it is that wants to talk about their subject matter expertise associated with hamas and israel you yeah. can't you yeah. can't like you you, you can't yeah. however where are those guys where, yeah. where are they at right now are they are they busting down the door to try to talk about uh burn pit accountability chemical exposures and higher rates of toxins that we were exposed to yeah. with an increase of cancer that's killing us. in our peer group that is killing everyone i don't think so i mean maybe i uh, prove me wrong, by the way. I will more than happy. I, I will be more than happy to eat crow. So if you know if there are any generals that want to like like email me directly, please do or or respond to you know Black Rifle Coffee's customer service because 
to be fair, I would love to a pile of them to prove me wrong and say, there are guys out there talking about this every day. Just they're one. Lobbying. Just one. one. Yeah. Just, they're lobbying every day right now trying to you know take care of the boys. But it's not because what I realized is that it's the it's a t-shirt quote from 30 seconds out. It's a, it's a whole thing that, you know, no one is coming. It's up to us. No one is coming. It's up to us. That's the whole point of the endeavor here, by the way, Mike. It's like, no one is coming. It's up to me. And the exercise of trying to go out, start a company, develop a culture around the special operations team room, developing something that allows people to feel safe, encouraged, surround themselves with something that is positive. Like that was the point of the exercise. It wasn't to create individual wealth for me. It was actually, I, I, I value time and experience way more than I value money. So for me, it's leading by example in the context of I'm trying to lead people to go out and start their own businesses. I'm trying to give them an example that says, hey, if I can take a company public in nine years from my garage, you guys can go out, mm. start a business, like mm. write a business plan, get a small business loan, like develop an, an instituted culture where you can have a direct impact on the people around you, where you can create your own universe. I get to come into this office, which is one of the direct benefits of this. I get to come into this office and smoke and joke with my buddies. I built that. It's not because like, oh, must be nice. Well, fuck off. Yeah, yeah it is nice. You know why? Because I built it. It's mine. So I get to come into an office and I can talk about stress, anxiety, sleep issues, depression, you know, higher rates of, of cancer. And I can have an open conversation about the anxieties associated with war, which we still live with, mm -hmm. in an office that I built because I curated the culture around support from an emotional and psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. Like I built it around the team room. If I walk down the office... And I have a conversation with somebody about uh, how cool something was. You know, maybe it was like hot wiring a cement truck to drive it through the compound of a, you know, a wall of a compound. That's cool. Nobody looks at me like I'm a psychopath. And here they're like, that's cool, man. I remember this other time when I was like doing this thing. You can't do that in 90% of the, the business places in America. You can't go have this like cool conversation about, you know, jumping out of a helicopter at night or, you know, running through the fucking mountains for your life or whatever it might be because your peer group, your subset of employees are going to look at you like you're a fucking lunatic. Mm -hmm. If somebody comes in and says, ah, man, I'm having a sleep issue, you know, I'm dealing with a little bit of anxiety and I don't know what to do. They can talk to the CEO, me, and I can go, hey, this is what I did. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, get blackout curtains and a noise machine, you know, change your diet, like work out. One of the reasons why we have a gym here. Mm. with a sauna so guys can come in here and fucking bang out a bunch of steel work out all their energy and then go to work and then go back home to a place that they love like that's the whole flywheel effect of like establishing a home life where you can curate your own adventure there of love and support and then going into another company or your professional work work environment where you're loved and supported mm. it's a positive flywheel effect how do you just further disseminate that that culture though outside of a podcast is there a is there a another opportunity can you can you go out and push that information in different ways i mean how i'm yeah, sure you talked about a cam's podcast and maybe i don't talk about it too often you know why because it, it makes me sound like braggadocious or some way where i'm like ah 
This makes me sound like a fucking asshole. Well, there's a recipe there for success. I mean, there's a recipe there for changing culture in your own way. Like, I'm sure people are interested in like, hey, what's the step-by-step? What's the pro tips? How do I do that? I mean, you know, how do you do it, I think, is one. Like, it takes courage. Yeah. Like, it, it does. It takes courage. Like, you have to break out of your nine-to-five life. You have to change it. You also have to be willing it's to. scary, right? Yeah, it's scary as shit. You know that. Yeah. Dude, it's scary. When, when you're hunting and killing so your food, scary. it's scary. When you can't go to the grocery store anymore and you step out into the field and it's like, whatever I do out here mm-hmm. is how I eat. That's what it's like. Mm-hmm. Taking that first step saying, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to the grocery store. I'm only going to survive off, off the land. Whoa. That's big. That's a big deal. It's the equivalent of starting your own business. It's like doing the invasion. Yeah, dude. I never got an invasion. I was in the Q course during the invasion. I was in selection in 02 and then Q course in 03. But I imagine you did the invasion, but it's like in the invasion, and I'm making shit up because I wasn't Please, in yeah. the invasion. Make, make it up. But I assume that when you were doing day to day ops, you're doing truck side, you're doing, you're not doing in an ops in. You're not doing your operational plans. You're doing it off the hood of the truck. Yeah, it's hood you're of doing the truck. sand tables by the sand and the dirt next to the truck. Mm-hmm. And every single day, you're like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We could all get hit with a Scud missile tomorrow, and we're all dead. We could, whatever. It's like the unknown every single day. And but all your actions that you do individually, and then as a team, are going to dictate the next gate in your future. Mm-hmm. It's like. We can go through this gate and we can take a left or we can take a right. Maybe we take a left, we potentially get killed. But if we take a right, but potentially we get injured. We don't know. We're not going to get unscathed, but it's scary. It's sketchy. But you do the best you can with the information you got. And that that seems like the entrepreneurship ex- adve- adventure or experience. Yeah, I think I, well, when you have mission success, right? So you, you clearly have what I would say is mission success or your mission success criteria. What is it? What are you doing? So ultimately, you know, the push to Baghdad is a good example, which is like, we're going to Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to scoop up, you know, a bunch of feta in shit bags on the way up. We're going to, you know, but outside of that, I was like, Hey, we're going to Baghdad. I'm like, okay, get to Baghdad. <laughs> like, yeah. So you have to have clearly defined mission success criteria, and then you have to have goals and objectives associated with your mission success success criteria. And you know, starting your own business and then moving out in a way that's like, it's very, well, I mean, it's entrepreneurial to your point, but it's, it takes a significant amount of courage, which also takes uh, self-confidence because when things get hard, you've also got to have the, the psychological wherewithal to push through the downside. Because, I mean, trust me, when I say like 10 years, there's, there's, it's not like a fucking constant perpetual high of highs. It's like high, low, high, low, high, low, 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 high. It kind of all over the place. You and I have talked about it a lot where, you know, I can call you and, and I can lament over bullshit and you can be empathetic to my plight and you can say, but that's okay, dude. Like, we got it. Let's go. Same thing. You can call me and you can like say X, Y, and Z and we can like, bounce ideas off each other. We can talk about what it's like to be in business, how tough the environment is right now. And it is. It's difficult to be in business right now. It's extremely difficult. Um, but you have to have 
one, your mission success criteria. Two, you have to have goals and objectives. And then three, what I would say is you have to have not only self-confidence, but you also have to have teams, right? You have to have individual and collective skills that flow back into your team where you're unconsciously competent at proving that you can meet or exceed your goals and objectives. It's a lot. It's a lot to digest to what I just said, but it's not that hard. Mm. It takes discipline, takes courage, takes, you know, self-confidence, but I'm not smarter than anybody else, right? You know, mm. It's like you and I have, I would say, just above average IQ, if not average. Mm. The difference is, is that we can triage, prioritize, and execute against its standard, mm. and we hold ourselves accountable. We'll take responsibility for our actions and hold ourselves accountable. Whereas a lot of people don't want that accountability. They don't. They, they don't want to step out, and you know, walk across the the, the tightrope without the safety net. They don't want to do it, mm. and that's okay. By the way, hey, hey, not everybody's cut out for this. We we shouldn't say everybody should do it. I'm saying those that are thinking about it and those people that are finding themselves the excuses not to do it need to delete the excuses and fucking do it because when you're at the last minute of your life and you've been grinding yourself into moon dust for decades around whether or not you should or shouldn't do something the thing you're going to remember is this. You're going to remember that idea that you had that you wish you would have had or that you wish have, wish you would have executed on, but you didn't have the courage to do it. And when you feel cowardice sneaking in, that's when you have to fucking kill it with fire. I like that. It's my diatribe. Scary true. It is. Uh, you know what I noticed too? Uh, a commonality with most of the guys that are own businesses and are semi-successful or however you define success is the ability to operate in a window of stress where most people would completely implode. Mm. So it's like being in an active gunfight, you know, in an active gunfight, you're going to have a myriad and a spectrum of people who are conditioned for the stress across the board. You're going to have a guy who's far right who's like standing up joking. You're like, dude, put your head down. Like you're just laughing and joking and hanging out. Like we're in a gunfight. Right. And then you're going to have the guy on the far left who's in the fetal sucking on his thumb. And it's like if you could operate and just get through the subtask, the individual techniques and tactics that are going to make you make you successful, one sometimes moment at a time, you'll get through that gunfight and then you'll be even better conditioned for the next one. And so when my team comes to me and they're freaking hairs on fire and they're losing it. And I'm like, it, everything's cool. Right. Let's figure out how to manage this. Let's mitigate it. Let's look at the problem, identify sol uh, solutions. Let's start subsourcing outlets to make sure we manage this. And then you get through that. And then as a team, as a leader, but as a team, you're more conditioned for it the next time. Mm -hmm. And now you're, you're, you're now used to operating in chaos. And it's that whole like, um, comfort in chaos. It's like what I've noticed about both us as individuals, no matter what it is, I mean, it could be like, it could be nil. I mean, it's like, man, we have to work through this. How? I don't know. One breath at a time, one step at a time. And you could look at that as your professional acumen, but it certainly benefits your personal development as a individual. 
I mean, business for sure has made me a better father and vice versa. Right. Being a, being a father, being available, being intentional has made me a better business owner. And, you know, I, I've realized in, in my plan in the future to step away from Philcraft and be the, <coughs> be the founder. Right. That my, I have now outsourced my time because I've outsourced all the positions to get back more time. And instead of, which I did for years, reinvesting that time to more things to grow, to grow, to grow, I have really talented people that now I'm in their way. I'm the obstacle in their way. And so there's a founder perspective. I talked to Chad Robichaud about this. He's in the same boat where he's stepping away from Mighty Oaks Foundation. But it's like, man, now he, he, he reinvented himself and put himself as the founder, which is above the CEO, because culturally he's influencing the business perspective to change business tactics. But you need that. It's just like in an operational environment. You need AFO. You need to be operationally prepping the environment in advance constantly while the boys are doing their thing. Right. And now it's like I personally have to step and be that guy for the company in a in a different position. It's not it's not a better position, it's a different position, which requires nearly as much, if not more, of my time. But that perspective is now strategic. So now you're you're the you're the general in the opsin or the SOCOM managing big picture so that your guys can succeed at the tactical level. You know, they're they're in the operational unit and you're at SOCOM sitting in a room. It's like, yeah, it sucks to be there, but positionally, that's kind of like how the evolution evolves. It's like the business entrepreneurship experience, like doing the day-to-day in some cases, specifically mine, you're going to get in the way. And and there's a better position for you front running the branding, the culture, and all the positioning of the company to get the word out. Right. You know, I'm better positioned to be on Rogan talking about preparedness than I am in the nitty gritty doing the thing. Right. Where is your p- perspective on that? Because you're, I see you in a conundrum. You're in, I'm a very small scale compared to your big scale, but I feel like you're walking the tightrope. And you're in some kind of uh, position as that for that as well. I mean, we're doing a podcast because yeah, yeah. you got the team to be able to do the thing. Yeah, but I think I think it's also like it's your duty. I think you know clearly differentiating between what is your passion and what is your duty. Mm. There's it's a, it's a different thing. So it's yeah, like what is different. your so you have what I would say is like kind of three roads, which I haven't really thought about this too in depth. But I would say you know you have three three roads, which is what are you what is your core competency so what are what are you really good at mm-hmm. what are you passionate about because sometimes those things aren't necessarily overlapping Mine are, yeah. right so and then what is your duty mm-hmm. so your duty so let's say your passion is conflicting with your duty and your core competency mm-hmm. duty overrides passion every time mm-hmm. so what happens with a lot of entrepreneurs is they they get selfish and then they want to only do what they're passionate about, what, what what they like, and they get spoiled. What they enjoy. What they enjoy. Yeah. And they use opportunities to clearly differentiate themselves from like what is their duty to what is their passion. They try to pull the the company's core mission over into their passion. And 
they don't have to be exclusive and they don't necessarily have to be in conflict. They just, they can be. I've seen it a lot with a lot of different entrepreneurs is they think every fucking idea they have is like the greatest idea and that they've had a little bit of success and that means they're just going to keep fucking running the craps table, right? Well, I, one of the most successful entrepreneurs I know actually, he got, he was really good at doing his core, core business. I won't reference him in this because it might be somewhat embarrassing, but he was really good at, re- at executing on his core business. It made him very wealthy, like to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. But then he had failure after failure after failure after failure after failure because he thought he had the Midas touch. And, you know, he's fortunate enough to not lose all of his money. Mm. Great. But he, what I call it is like drinking your own piss, right? It's like, you can get away with it once, maybe twice, before it starts to literally kill shut you, you down. Yeah, yeah, it will kill you. Yeah, and so a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll they'll feed themselves full of their own ego, and then and, and the organization that they built will allow them to do that as well. Because you, if you've hired a bunch of yes men, when those yes men will just in turn like golf clap every time you open up your fucking mouth and make you feel like an exceptional human every day of your life, you're not doing yourself any favors because you're not having an objective reality check with yourself. Mm-hmm. So what is my duty? What is my core competency? What is my passion? People conflict those things all the time. And I I have the same, I mean, I have the same internal conflict. I'm not any different than anyone else. But what 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 has helped is my partners have been very good and they've been very objective. Like Matt is not my he's not a yes man. He's not standing around golf clapping every time I talk. More reality of it is is like he's like, that's fucking stupid probably shouldn't do that right so jared is very much in this similar you know it, it, very very similar mm-hmm. jared will be like that's stupid we shouldn't do that most of the time i would say my partners tell me i'm stupid then like great job congratulations high fives and accolades all around most of the time what they're doing is they're blowing fucking holes in every idea i have which is good it's great yeah that's what you want you you want a meritocracy you want me the best idea when and ultimately can we have a leader that is their duty their responsibility and their passion to execute against what i would say is the highest priority of the business that aligns with the goals and objectives associated with it and it's not an altruistic endeavor it's not as if you're doing it for free you're you're also being compensated from the company but what i will say is that we've had this really easy economy over the past you know, decade where yeah. there's a lot of very complacent business leaders that have been fortunate to lead businesses in, in, in high growth economies and they haven't had to make really difficult decisions. The most difficult decision they had to make was like, oh my gosh, we have to you know, hire remote employees. But they don't have to make the tough decisions when it comes to overhead or cutting salaries and wages. You know, they don't have to make the decisions in, in, in negotiating higher interest rates for, you know, their, their capital stacks. They, they're not in those. And what I would say is, like, Silicon Valley has bred this, this, this era of complacent business leaders where it's basically a spigot of free money mm. because you had plus or minus, we'll call it a trillion dollars float through there in the last 10 years, if not more, that's led – it's lended itself – to things like uh, WeWork. Uh, and by the way, I'm not saying anything negative about WeWork, but I never understood it. Like, 
just doesn't, how does this work? How, how is this like fundamentally, if there's a shift in the economy and if your P&L, your P&L could, could be shifting all over the place. I never understood how this was getting such a high multiple. I never, never got it. Okay, I didn't have to. It's not me. I was like, oh, this shit's way more sophisticated than I'm capable of understanding. But it's not only that. You've had things like this or what I would say is vaporware and technology where they're not really selling anything. They're selling the, the idea. Mm. And it's millions of dollars. I mean, mil multi-millionaires have been made in Silicon Valley over people's ideas. Mm -hmm. And they've had bad leadership with execution on top of that with more money because of what I would say is an endless spigot of, of gambling. Mm -hmm. Like you have speculators that are like, great, I'm going to make 10 investments. Each one of them are going to be a million dollars a piece. I'm going to own 50% of these startups. Um, I need one to hit. Yeah. Right. So it's just like, it's, it's, it's like placing bets from the, and, and I know it's more complicated than that. So like, by the way, totally fine. It's way more complicated than that. But when you look at private equity and venture capital, you know, as you're doing due diligence and research, you're also doing essentially a batting average. You're saying, I know that I'm, I'm not going to get a hundred percent. We're not going to bat a hundred percent, which has always been my, my quandary in the context of like, I like selling things like, you know, I drink coffee. I'm super passionate about it. I love it. It's super easy for me to be authentically engaged with the product because I love it. Mm -hmm. It's easy. It's easy for me to be like, that's great, man. Let's talk about South American logistics. Let's figure out like how we're going to import a better bean at a lower price. Like I got it. Like I understand it. And more importantly, it's awesome, right? It's super mm -hmm. fun for me to get. So you can't, that's where like passion, where, you know, my passion and love for coffee is ultimately driven me down this path. But it's my duty to not spend all of my time down in you know Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, trying to find you know the ninety plus coffees that I can import you know a whopping you know thirty thousand pounds a year on right, which is like yeah, I would love to do that. It'd be awesome. I'd love that to be my job. But I can't passionately. I could be a thousand percent immersed in nothing but coffee all the time, right? But mm. I can't. I have to be involved in a wide variety of things across the business because ultimately we have to make business decisions that will meet or exceed goals and objectives associated with the company. Mm. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or I just- It did at all. In. Did I tell you about my book, uh, oh, Prepared? Wait, hold on, what is this? I, I just came out with a book. It's called Prepared. It's called Prepared. Hold on, I'll read the <laughs> interior of this. Yep. Even. Even. <laughs> Thank you. It's in Korean. How uh, you're insulting my heritage. Uh, and then it's and it's like in allowing me to support your mission at BCRR. Really? Even. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Even Steven. Yeah. DOL. Love you doll. Yeah. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. Who do you think Have you even read that book that I gave you a year ago? No. You've had it for a year now. No. Um, <laughs> what? Hey. I, I, I mean, I see this. Well, I, that's why you can continue to plug it because you haven't read it. So <clears throat> I will read you a quote from the back. From you. you Mike Glover is one of the best instructors I've ever trained and worked with. His experience in the global war on terror and his ability to combine 
His, his ability to combine that with his intellect equals survival wisdom. So the equation is easy. Experience plus IQ plus communication equals wisdom. Survival equals wisdom. The asterisk better shooter than I. You but, forgot that. No, not now. Like, why, I mean, why were you shooting not very good? It's been a while since I've seen you off on the you. range. What are you talking about? I crushed your soul out it there. Was, you were not shooting well. I just, I I, but I still crushed you. I couldn't believe it. When are you building my gun? You, you owe me a gun. Which one? You, I don't know. Like BJ Baldwin, the gun that he made for me. Oh, I broke You have thing. somewhere. I, I took it apart trying to put a cop on it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and you blew it out? Oh, no, I didn't blow it out. I have like an Allen key stuck inside it, and I cannot get it out. I'm going to have to take it to a locksmith to get this thing just out. Just melt it. Yeah, melt I could just melt, melt, it, melt down it down. To I a keychain. melt it down and... Uh, uh, what, what else? I was going to ask you something before before we let you go back to whatever. whatever Iran? Your, your, yeah. Skid Row. No, I want to ask you about, give us your hot take on what's happening in Gaza and Israel right now. For those of you that haven't watched, Mike. Yeah, it's so it's a very difficult situation. And, and look, uh, let me just caveat this by, I have no skin in the game in bias. What I mean is like, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Palestinian. I don't understand the region like a lot of people do culturally. And I take a lot of what's happening at face value and and then make decisions based on my experience, which is counterterrorism, the military, uh, uh, other government agencies, homeland security, my academic experience, my bachelor's degrees in, in crisis response and homeland security. All that with a grain of salt, you have a terrorist organization that came in and killed 1,400 plus civilians. The, the now hostage count is up near 300, which they keep changing that number because they're discovering that people who they thought were bodies, they've confirmed that now their body isn't in the freezer where they put them in the morgue and they can't identify where that person is. Some of these remains, by the way, are just pieces of skeletal remains because mm -hmm. they were burning down entire villages, safe rooms to the ground, including in one instance, as reported by the Western media, um, stacked 10 flex cuff children on top of each other and lit them on fire. So this is the, 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 the circumstance where you're dealing with a terrorist organization as designated by a terrorist, as a terrorist organization since the 80s, and has been in charge of Gaza since 2007, 2006, 2007 timeframe. The so you take that with a grain of salt. That's very binary to me. There is no gray area there. Terrorist attacks kills innocent civilians. You defend yourself. Mm -hmm. Israel's self defense in their campaign is what most of the free world would do, right? If you're a sovereign nation full of laws and and you actually have um, a moral compass and you have regulations and in the tactical operations center, there's a JSOC officer sitting next to the IDF commander. Like that's how it's operating. It's like, they're not getting away with things. That's what it is. Right. They're doing a phase campaign. The part of that first phase of campaign, cause now we're in phase two of it was to surgically strike, but you have a terrorist organization who's now the government Oh, by the way, suppresses their own people, stones gays to death, um, um, murders innocent women because of fidelity and the witnesses. Sharia law is in yeah, effect. Yeah. 
they surgically strike them, but those places in which they're striking have civilians because Hamas uses civilians, including firing rockets from behind them. And where I saw the, the turn in culture was this hospital attack. Because mm-hmm. you saw the national media reporting like 15 minutes after it happened, right. reporting as a, f- a matter of fact from Hamas telling them that 500 people were killed. It's like, really? This just happened 15 minutes ago. Like you, you just established 500 people? Yeah, 500 people dead. And then every headline read that, right? When, when I saw the original footage out the gate, I was like, okay, not rocket scientists here. You, you see a parking lot. The cars aren't even flipped upside down. Mm. They're scorched. That's propellant. That means that whatever the attack was wasn't explosive, concussive, and you don't have. I, I don't. I don't have a degree in ballistics and and um, understand intercontinental ballistic, uh, 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 ballistic missiles technology. I just know this from experience. When things are burned out, that's typically a propellant that's burned out. Mm. No concussive blast. Yeah, blew out glass, but it looks different. And then when you see the perspective, it's like that's not a hospital. It's a parking lot. Wait, where's the hospital? And then you have people like MSNBC was literally reporting while they're showing the video from Hamas or from journalists in Palestine or, or in Gaza showing the parking lot. And then they're saying at the same time as a talking point, 500 people were killed. And you're like, what? What? 500 people were killed in a hospital? You're showing in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. That was a parking lot. And then with all the evidence that came out, not one organization in news showed and definitively said we screwed up, and then and then when I when I reported on it on prepared on my uh, Mike Glover actual YouTube channel, and then talked about it, everybody's like, "You're just siding with Israel because you hate Muslims." Like, oh, that's interesting. Like I've never seen this kind of like I don't even know what this is. So now I understand culturally how divisive it is, and outside of the Harvards and the NYU's and all the things that people are advocating for and the Israeli side. The mistake Israel was making is the length of time they're taking to actually campaign a ground invasion into Gaza. And they're also strategically making a mistake because they're, they're overtly advertising what they're doing, which you don't like to do. But to win the hearts and minds the best way they know how, they're advertising it. That's not good enough for, for Western media. That's not good enough for the... I would say radicals who are advocating for Hamas and their atrocities. It's like they're telling you they're going to bomb you because of Hamas location is here. They're dumping leaflets and literally saying this is what we're doing, but that's not good enough for you. The mistake is they're 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 losing the opportunity to surgically strike by doing the ground campaign. Now I think that was st- st- uh, uh, stifled by our own because of the Haas's circumstance. And I get that. Diplomatically, I get that. Sure. When they released a couple and they released two Americans initially, a mother and a daughter, it's like there might be an opportunity for more. Completely understand. Except it's a terrorist organization. And they're a bunch of scumbags. They're underground. Those hostages are in a tunnel somewhere, 311 miles of tunnel, by the way, 100 feet below the ground. And now they're just starting to prep the objective to do the uh, sweep across. I don't know how this turns out, but it doesn't turn out well for America and our interest because we're going to be involved. We can't let Israel flail. We can't let Lebanon and Hezbollah strike. We can't let Yemen and the Houthis launch uh, um, random attacks that are very pointed and backed by Iran. You think a bunch of caught chewing 
losers in the middle of a desert who are, who are literally campaigning to kill Americans are launching drones with explosives by themselves? No, they're being backed by Iran. Mm-hmm. The United Nations and the General Assembly, which is happening right now, it just happened in New York, the diplomat from Iran literally said basically, um, if America wants to continue to do what Israel's doing, which he calls it a, a genocide against Gaza, Gazans, then it will be on the same docket for elimination that Israel is in. That's a large threat. I mean, that that is like go to war speech. Mm. We are likely going to be in a full scale war with Iran. And it only, it, 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 usually there's like a five step process to everything. Right. It's like five steps to that. We're like a step away. We're one action or inaction away from that. Like our big retaliation when we had a couple dozen American service members injured in Syria, when they launched 20 plus drones and attacks from different locations, was to hit a barren warehouse with nothing in it. I mean, literally they showed the advertisement of the surgical strike conducted and it was a warehouse in the middle of the desert. And that's our big retaliation. It's because we're playing the game so carefully because we know if we do the right or maybe the wrong thing, Iran's going to retaliate, launch one intercontinental ballistic nuke that will be intercepted, and then it'll be go to war. Mm. And right now, we're doing exercises with the Israelis. The Marine Corps Expeditionary Unit is has come ashore, and they're doing exercises with the Israelis. That's prep and rehearsal for war. Right. Um, and we're likely going to be in it. And all those guys that we are doing a special operations prep course in December, that's a plug because I didn't do it because I was like, the policy and all the things we're doing, we're not doing shit. Now, for the first time, I actually think we will be going to war. And it will be a multi-tiered advance on multiple agencies, um, including Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran, and everybody they support as an action arm. And that could be that for the region is scary. And that, because of the nuclear threat, um, most Americans, every American uh, should be concerned with. What do, you, what do you think Iran gains in this? Like, like their, their modus operandi? International like, influence. Mm-hmm. For the first time, like there was a vote yesterday, or the other day, two days ago. There was a vote, and the vote was solidarity, standing with Israelis and condemning the attacks, the terrorist attacks that took place in Israel. They voted it down because they didn't have the majority. They had a majority, but they didn't have the the two-thirds required. Mm, super majority. The countries that didn't uh, vote cheered and celebrated for the fact that it didn't get approved. That's how divided the region is. Mm. Because if you're Muslim, which really shook me, because I had Muslim friends that I fought next to. I mean, I, I've been in multiple campaigns, whether it's working with the Afghan partnering unit in Afghanistan side-by-side, ICTF in Iraq, the, the the not the Houthis in Yemen working with counterterrorism organizations, including the Yemenis who are, who are countering uh, counterterrorism. All these fronts. Having my own friends that were Muslim contact me and say, "How could you support Israel?" And regurgitating right now, the death count is eight thousand. That's taking in account in Gaza the five hundred they arbitrarily just threw at the wall and said, "Yeah, it's five hundred. We don't know to tell you." Like. Guys, maybe a dozen people died in that 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 uh, 
Islamic jihadist rocket that failed and launched into the parking lot where you had two Hamas operatives going, we, we did that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where did we launch it from? The cemetery. The dude's literally like, the cemetery? I, I don't, we don't, we didn't launch, we don't have a place to launch it from the cemetery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He literally goes, when you go into the parking lot, you take a right and there's like, a, he goes, oh, that's, oh, yeah, that's bad. We should like tell everybody like to deny it. Like we didn't do that. My bad. That, that's literally between two people when it was like fake news. That's not real. And you're like, guys, 8,000 people. There are significant people dying from the attacks on these installations and where these guys are. Guys, these are, these are pointed attacks. We likely have guys in the operations center that are creating enough correlation and fidelity to attack these targets, which means there's a criteria. It's not just like, hey, there's a hospital. Push the button. Evaporate the hospital. It's like, hey, we have to have signal intelligence. We have to have some kind of corroborated reports. We have to have multiple layers to say that's where it's at, and that's how they strike. But people who don't understand that just see it as a genocide. Mm. These guys are Zionist. It's like, holy shit. The international community is backing Iran. And if you're a... Let me give you the best, the, the last point on this. The king of Jordan, King Abdullah, he did a speech in Egypt. 70% of Jordan is Palestinian. Mm -hmm. The Egyptian president and the king of Jordan who are big Muslim supporters, they're Muslim themselves, 70% of Jordan is Palestinian. The Palestinian authority is based in Jordan. They literally said, we're not taking one refugee from the circumstance. And you're like, what? It's like, look, we, we're not gonna take one refugee. At the same time, he was saying that certainly Hamas is bad, there was a terrorist attack, and certainly their self-defense is, is allowed. But the continued strikes with no deliberate understanding of how long this lasts and disaffecting innocent people, which I would, I would wrap under collective punishment, I mean, that's what it is, yep. is not good. Completely agreed. You don't have to be binary and conclusive in this debate. Most people think it's like, it's either Israel or Palestine. It's like, guys, I don't have any skin in the game. I'm reporting it because I want you to be better prepared, and I want, I want to give you the talking points from both sides and give you some assessment. But the reality is, it is a very complicated cultural issue. So you could say being hit by terrorists is bad and kill them all, kill all the bad guys. At the same time saying, it's not okay for Israel to continue to bombard and disaffect a population of two plus million into wasted Stone Age. Like, until there's no, like, that's it. It's like mm -hmm. rubble. That's not okay. So what's the answer? Well, they're working through the phase campaign, and we'll soon see. Iran is likely to get broadly, more broadly involved, gather international support, and then justify their retaliation and say, hey, we told you. We said at the UN Council when you guys voted down that we're going to stand in solidarity, that we're going to attack if they continue. So when we hit an Israeli uh, tank in Bradley column going into Gaza and we kill 100 Israeli soldiers, expect that. That's literally what they're doing. They're setting the international stage. And when they do it, there's going to be a UN, uh, 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 probably a convention, where they come together and everybody goes, hey, what are we going to do now? And most of the UN support, the United Nations support, is not going to support going to war with Iran. Um, and they're going to say, if you want to do it, America, you're on your own.
and we're going to be like, holy crap. And a lot of people are going to be advocating for it. A lot of people are going to be uh, advocating against it. But where do we stand in all this? Well, it, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm going to L.A. like this week, because it's like that's what we're left with. Right. Uh, homelessness, <laughs> drug overdose, mental health issues, uh, real issues like cancer and veterans that we're not paying attention to. Our economy, which is broken are and tethered, and then policies that are in place that make no sense, that are only destroying and debilitating our company. In the last 30 days, in September, 260,000 people came across the border. The record was 230 the year prior, under Biden. 30 Iranians were detained at the border. Two of them were on the terrorist watch list. My question is how many of them right. got across yeah, yeah. and are in our country potentially gonna attack us? Right. It's scary times for a lot of reasons, including we're not paying attention to anything but everything outside of us when we should be focused on our country and the issues that we're facing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think I, I can't really like capstone that to any any degree of significance other than like we, we've seen this over the last couple of decades, which is the transference of wealth from the taxpayer into the focus in the build of the military industrial complex in the Middle East, which, by the way, you know, both Mike and I were in Iraq and Afghanistan both. But the, the largest transfer of wealth in modern history has not been from the taxpayer to bail out the banks in 2007 or 2008. It's actually through the military-industrial complex over two decades of war. That was the largest transfer of wealth. Yeah. So when we really think about going to war, and we think about what what is the actual cost in both blood and treasure, both you and I have, could name countless friends that are either lost in conflict or post-conflict. I'm more so convinced now today that concentrating our efforts on building a great country, like building infrastructure, educating children, like you know, modernizing our industry, the investment will return tenfold. This quagmire, which ultimately was the definition for Iraq from the Iraqis, which you will enter in a quagmire, is exactly, I think, what they put out. They were right. It was a quagmire. It was an exercise, and, and, and I talked a little bit about this to, to quite a few different people, which is when you see the, the, the exercise in the expenditure of taxpayer dollars, which ultimately is a war of occupation. When you think about a war of occupation, in, in definitely within countries that have no means in order to, to jeopardize your sovereignty, a war of occupation against a country that can't take away your sovereignty, meaning your ability to exist 100 years from now, that is an expenditure of taxpayer dollars and blood from your citizens. It's a choice. When it's not a choice, means we're going to roll out of bed in a week and start speaking German because the Nazis are going to attack us. And they do have the means because when we roll back the clock several decades into 1941, we didn't have a choice. It represented our means in order to carry on the constitutional values of the United States 100 years from now. We didn't have a choice. We did have a choice ultimately, in the wars of occupation and how we fought Afghanistan and Iraq, both. both. We can debate the, the, the ethics of the way they were fought. I'll never debate the American service member and whether or not they represented their country in honor and dignity because I believe that they did. 
The problem is, is that politicians were persuaded in the way that they were managing and executing against those wars for extended periods of time because of the military industrial complex. That's my belief. The, the lookout and the warning is that now that we've deteriorated our infrastructure and the lack of investments, the lack of possible investments that we could have made over the last 20 years within our country here has directly made us more vulnerable than we'd ever been before. It hasn't made us safer. It hasn't. It hasn't made, you know, letting 260,000 people across the border doesn't make us safer. doesn't make us more economically viable. doesn't. Like I, and I fully understand uh, the, the significance of people coming to America as a beacon of hope, looking for opportunity because we do have to be the beacon of opportunity. I truly believe that we have to represent freedom and a land of opportunity, but it has to be done the right way. Mm. And like when I talk about, you know, South America specifically, and I talk about, you know, coffee imports and working with good farmers and stabilizing different economies, specifically south of our border, I'm creating jobs not only here, but in South America through sustainable farming and coffee that ultimately does represent long-term investment in having the right economies within Nicaragua, El Salvador, or Panama, regardless of the country, so we can create more jobs there in our hemisphere that ultimately makes us safer because we don't have to protect our borders. If we're building economies in our own hemisphere, we're helping our neighbors, that prevents a large influx of illegal immigration here in the United States. It's not us saying we don't want to help people because we do. Like you and I are very, I think, moral characters in that regard is that we do want to create opportunities for people. We do want people to succeed. Like I want to see Americans thrive. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is we've off we we've outsourced so many of our professional workforce to one of our biggest foes which would be China so you know imports and technology i mean think about the iphone right so you think about this thing we can't make one of these in the united states anymore no we can't make a phone in the united states Don't have the talent we, we we're, we're more than we're more than happy to outsource the talent the technology the minerals to countries like China and then ultimately will will they'll they're going to take advantage of of slave labor in a lot of these other countries in Africa where they're taking cobalt out of mines that's fine that's fine for a lot of Americans because it's they're, gonna pick up, it's, they're like yeah. they're going to line up for the next iPhone they're they're going to be okay with that yeah. the second you talk about building jobs in the United States the second you talk about building jobs in this hemisphere, you know, really, really executing against tight trade trade regulations that not only encourage but enhance our ability to protect our country by cooperating with different like Mexico is a great example. They're right across the border. Hmm. Like there's there's ways that we could really work within our hemisphere with the countries that are right here to, if we can't afford the technology, meaning the professional workforce and the building of that professional workplace, so we can afford this phone. And if we can't do that in the United States, we sure as shit need to concentrate on doing it in our own hemisphere. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. like it makes kind of like no sense to me as to why people aren't beating the drums for 
and and I know there there's actually a ton. I had a really interesting conversation with Eric Prince. He's got a phone coming out where it's like he, he's building it not in China. He's building in another Southeast Asian country. You know, he's he's got a lot of resources that he poured that he's poured into this. But there's there's more than ample opportunity for people to have these really hyperbolic and emotional conversations about things that they don't understand, like, for instance, Israeli and Palestinian politics, history, and the conflict itself. Uh, really what they have to say is it's it's not is Israel and Palestine. It's Israel and Hamas. That's a clear differentiating factor because that's they're, they're not going to war against the Palestinians. They're going to war against Hamas. I think that's a clear distinction because they are a terrorist organization, as you and I both completely and coherently understand. And then we have to also, I think, encourage this within the business community because, you know, there's environmental, social, and governments, ESG. Mm. Okay. There is not a grading criteria for corporations that want to maintain American jobs. Mm. There's not Mm. environmental, social, governments, ESG. But if we had ESSG, security, so how is this directly enhancing the long-term viability of growing corporate professional infrastructure within the United States? Hey, man, like I'll capitulate on a couple of these other things, but we're not talking about you know hiring you know hiring veterans because we've got a higher underemployment rate. We're not talking about hiring at-risk veterans because they've got a higher rate of suicide or a higher rate of cancer. We're not talking about that. We're talking about, have you used a more sustainable styrofoam cup? Mm. Yeah, there's no Do incentive. I give a shit? Yeah, there's no incentive. If I don't have any jobs here in the United States, do I really? I'm not saying the environment doesn't need to be like, like directly. Uh, I, I, when I say this, it's, it's, it's like, I believe in clean air. I got two little kids. I don't want to live in a fucking polluted environment. I don't think anybody does. But I do need to live in America. I kind of need that one to be around for a while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think you have a mix of priorities that are ultimately being driven. And I don't believe that like a cabal of conspiracy. I think that you have Americans are conflicted in their priorities and what they're thinking about. They're not necessarily looking at it from how do we really improve the situation that we're in today, right now, in yeah. our communities, in our companies, in, in how does that represent the whole of America? Which, by the way, means quite literally nothing because it's just you and I talking in a podcast, but that goes back to our first point, which is where are the generals? What, what are they talking about right now? Mm. Are they on Fox talking about the Hamas and Israel conflict? Mm. They are mm-hmm. talking about that. Mm. Are they talking about long-term sustainability, hiring creating jobs within this hemisphere, which ultimately lends itself to more security. No, they're not. They're talking about like how big of a subject matter expert they are because they led, you know, CENTCOM for six months or whatever it was. Mm. Yeah. I'm now depressed. <sighs> anyway. Did you hear about my book? I got this uh, book coming prepared, out. Prepared, uh, not scared, prepared by Mike Lover, available in all bookstores and Audible right now. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming in, buddy. I appreciate it. That was good. I like yeah. it. Fun. Had fun. Thanks, dude.